live and on the radio, as with every week. Hi there, I'm Rashawn Murrow. Over there is Alex Riddle, and this is Sudden Depth, the show taking you deep down into the profundities of our thoughts. And then coming up for a grasp or a gasp or whatever the word is of air of levity. And today is a very special episode of Sudden Depth. Special indeed because today we are marking the 100th, give or take a few days, the day of President Trump's presidency. Uh, oh, I was actually going to say presidency, okay. not domination. No, no, no. Uh, Dalmatian, Dalmatian, Dal- oh, Dalmatian. Well, I wasn't going to say Dalmatian either. Neither Dalmatian nor domination. Well, either would have been better. <laughs> okay. The hundred next time. give or take a few days of President Trump's Dalmatian. Tarnation. <laughs> okay, now you're just moving the goalpost. Calm down. All right. So the past 100 days of this presidency that no one saw coming except for a select few, certainly no one in the media who's made their profession of knowing what's coming politically. They didn't see this coming. And, you know, the first 100 days have had its their ups, its their downs, its their kind of plateaus, if you will. It's basically uh, the Grand Canyon of first 100 days. And not only in the way that the lines move up and down, but also in the breadth and depth of the hundred days. So much stuff happening at a break next day. Oh, I'm going all right. And you can't stop me. It's too late. And so, you know, we follow the first 100 days with precision and with um, paying attentionness. Insight. And that's a good word for paying attentionness. Um, <laughs> you're the linguist major, so I'll, I'll leave the big words to you. But the point Thank is, you. paying very close attention. And today is the day that we recap. We stop. We take a breath. We take it all in. We see where we've gone, where we've come from, and then possibly predict where we're going next in the next 100 days and or three and a half years. So... What we thought we'd do is we'd put together some of our favorite moments from the Trump first 100 days. And by favorite, we mean also not so favorite. Basically, any moment we thought was noteworthy from these 100 days. (laughs) So favorite is probably not actually the best word to use. But as we've said before, vocabulary is not my strong suit here. The following moments do not necessarily represent our views on favorite right you know the english language basically so what we've done is we've chosen uh well each of us kind of the best moment the highlight if you will the climax the peak points of the first 100 days and we've also chosen the low lights the the valley the um deep end of the first 100 days and then uh, finally, we've chosen the moment that we thought was noteworthy in some other way, whether it was a weird moment, a strange moment, a funny moment, a, a Trump moment, a, a bigly moment, which really is, speaking of bad vocabulary, that's a word to describe Trump there. It's a word that people don't think is actually a word, and it sounds ridiculous, but actually, when you look it up, it technically is a word. So that, that is Donald Trump in a nutshell. Thank you. I'll be here all hour. Technically a word. Technically a word, Peter Cottontail. 
That's that's bigly. And Donald Trump, mm. likewise, is technically a president. See what I did there? That's, that's called a transition right there. Thank you. You're, you're welcome for that. That one's for free. The next one will cost you. Transitions I hear work the best when you draw attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, like, it's kind of like the Caitlyn Jenner approach to transitioning. Well, so, well, wow, that wow. Yeah, <laughs> oh my, uh, you yeah, went there. You heard that? Oh no, you didn't. Man, let's uh, let us uh, dive right in. Dive right into the first 100 days is a good, the bad, and dare I say it, the bigly. Arid, why don't you go first and start us off on what's been the highlight of the Trump first 100 days to you? Um, well, I think we can all agree. All agree. Everyone in America in America, agree that Donald Trump's appointment of Neil uh, Gore this, Gore that, Gore suck, Gore great, Gore such, Gorsuch. Is that how we say it now? I think we say we, we say, say Gore such. We put emphasis on the such. Gore such to the Supreme Court. To the Supreme Court. What a great pick. Now, before we get into the Gore such, the pick to the Supreme Court, I'd like to go back to late last year when one of our favorite political commentators, actually my favorite political commentator and yours, actually sang the praises of Neil Gorsuch long before. He was actually nominated, and by long before, I mean a few months before, during the transition period. Take a listen to this noted, very important, world-renowned political commentator, your favorite and mine, talking about Gorsuch back in December. Neil Gorsuch? Gorsuch? Gorsuch. Let's say Gorsuch. Gorsuch. What do we know about this guy? Uh, Another Ivy Leaguer. Um, Serves on the Tenth Circuit. Uh... Let's see. It says, it says here, he's been critical of judges giving too much deference to federal agencies as well as the issue of criminalization. So I'm down with that. That sounds cool. Down with that. That sounds cool. That, that was the renowned Alexander Reese's pieces, college thesis, monkey Reese's, Robert Mugabe, Tupac Shakur, Biggie Smalls Riddle right there. Uh, they got super racist. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> it, it started a little racist and then just went went for it. So little little has changed as we can see. Rashawn is still a huge racist. We knew that. Wait a second. I I still Hold can on. barely pronounce. Uh, <laughs> I can still barely pronounce his name. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he's still a great guy. <laughs> yes, and man, you were way ahead of the curve there back in December saying, okay, cool, that guy's cool with me. Well, he was cool with the President of the United States, too, Alex. So you and the President are on the same wavelength there when it comes to Neil Gorsuch. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we, we just ride that wavelength together, you'll find. Well, well yes, I, I will find. And Basically, find. Trump and me just you know on a jet ski, sharing a jet ski. That's us, riding the waves. Well, that's a, a very uh, interesting observation you made there. That's Our hair inaccurate. both staying surprisingly flat in the wind. Well, surprisingly close to the scalp. <laughs> There's a lot going on with both of your scalps, I will say that. That's for darn sure. Now, if you don't mind, explain to the good folks out there why you chose the Gorsuch nomination as the highlight, the best moment of these first 100 days. Um, this was... 
I think for I think for everybody in America, there is a certain degree of, um, you know, is Trump a real president? Is he going to actually uh, like how how low is our bar here? And uh, this pick being a serious pick and being, uh, you know, a really great pick that pretty much anybody who was uh, nonpartisan was able to get behind. Um, well, I don't know if 46 tenant Democrats were not able to get behind. Well, I'm, that's what I'm, I'm saying. It's purely be, due to partisanship. I see. So that's I, what I'm suggesting. I see. Yeah, right. So um, um, anyway, what was I saying? You're saying everyone was able to get behind this pick and something else. He was a serious pick. He, uh, he, get, this was sort of a, a spot of, um, or a, I don't know, a bellwether harbinger. Those probably aren't Ooh, good harbinger. Words. They're not but because I don't know what they mean. This, this says, okay, maybe Trump will be a good president or at least a not, uh, not a clown and not Hitler. So, um, that that was uh, one of those things. Okay, we we we've a uh, um, it's a bit of a higher bar than our worst possible uh, expectations. That's right. One of the things I like about it. Um, that's all true. And also from a conservative point of view, I I love me some conservative point of view, as you may know. I uh, do know. A lot of conservatives during the campaign were skeptical. They didn't think that Donald Trump would govern as a conservative because. He certainly has no conservative ideological core. And one of the things that, you know, conservatives were able to hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump for was this idea that he would pick a Supreme Court justice from that list of 20 or so Supreme Court justices that he put out during the campaign. You know, if it weren't for Gorsuch, I think a lot of conservatives would have had a hard time and or not voted for Donald Trump at all because of many other problems that he has. But this was something that he actually promised in, on the campaign, uh, and he came through with, and he chose one of the better names on that list, if I do say so myself. And he got him confirmed, or at least the Senate got him confirmed, in the first 100 days. So we, we've now replaced Gouli, and we've got Gorsuch on the court in time to hear some of the big cases from this current uh, judicial session. So that's great. Um, and, you know, the philosophy that he holds, a, an originalist, is going to do, you know, rule based on what the law says, not what he wants the law to be, as, as we did a whole show on how Democrats think that judges should rule based on how they'd like the law to be, not necessarily on what the law says at the time. And so Gorsuch is going to be a great addition to the Supreme Court and a great replacement to the late great Antonin Scalia. I mean, that's... Indeed. And uh, his uh, whole confirmation uh, shenaniganry, uh, tomfoolery, really, I think, shined a light on how insane the uh, uh, left is in this country right now. Right, because a lot of those Democrats, you know, only three of them ended up voting for him. So um, let's see what well, we've got. 46 Democrats four, and two independents that caucus with Democrats. Not good mm-hmm. at math. I think that's 48 total Democrats. So three voted for Gorsuch. So 45 Democrats slash independents who caucus with Democrats voted against Neil Gorsuch on purely partisan reasons. We had left-wing extremists like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, justice up there, the notorious RBG, if you will. Um, She was voted in, what, 96 to 3 or something to that effect. You know, Antonin Scalia voted in, what, 98 to whatever. 
Right. When you uh, when you consider the historical context for these things, it, it's a uh, you know, it's clearly just well, we don't like Trump. We don't like you know losing, and our base demands that we fight him yeah. every step of the way, tooth and nail, or else there will be a primary challenge in our future. That's yeah, it's true. But I mean. In my my personal opinion, um, I don't have anything to back this up. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, how I love personal I, opinions. I think when they're baseless. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's baseless. I, I would say um, you know I don't have any hard evidence, but I've yeah I, soft I've evidence. listened to I've very soft evidence. I see. Um, the I I really think the Democrats have played overplayed their hand on this one. <laughs> um, well, this uh, you know the past hundred days in general. But I think this was a key moment when, uh, you know, you're going to see people uh, departing from, you know, under their thumb um, because this is this is just, you know, silly behavior. Right. And it's silly behavior, number one. And it sets a bad precedent at number two, as we discussed before on the show, uh, because Democrats were being so obstinate in their opposition to Donald Trump, and when it comes to the Supreme Court justice, Republicans were forced to change the rule to employ the nuclear option, which required only 51 votes, a simple majority, if you will, which is actually 50 Republicans plus the vice president, so really just 50 votes, to confirm any future Supreme Court justices. And with Anthony Kennedy uh, rumored to be retiring very soon, either this summer or soon thereafter, Donald Trump will almost certainly have a chance to replace a not-so-conservative justice with a conservative justice, thereby uh, for a long time altering the ideological balance on the court. And because Democrats, you know, forced the Republicans to get rid of the filibuster this time, it's gone for good. And they will rue the day when a more liberal justice retires and is replaced by another Gorsuch that they played partisan politics with this one. Yeah, I, I, uh, I really want to see that happen. I want to see what happens. Oh, so <laughs> do I. So much. I cannot wait. I, I think... Uh... It would just be hilarious if it's just a replay of, uh, you know, what about Mary Garland? <laughs> Which it will be, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. You're, you're going to pick him this time, please. <laughs> Not a chance. Oh, man, I can't. That'll be great. So, Anthony Kennedy, I hope you have a nice retirement. This summer is probably a good time to retire. It's uh, you know, going to be nice and warm out here. The seagulls are chirping. If that's what seagulls do, I'm not sure. And the waves will be hmm. waving and... Uh, Alex and the president will be on a jet ski somewhere. It'll be a great time to retire. So uh, happy trails, Justice Kennedy. Happy trail. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you're pretty old, too. You can uh, go ahead and retire as well. I would not be dishappy about that. Not saying that dishappy is a word, but she, she, is, uh, she is pretty old. Yeah. She looks kind of, uh, you know, like partly mummified. Well, <laughs> that's, now, that's just disrespectful right there. Is that, is that disrespectful? How dare you? You can't say that about How Supreme Court How dare you say that, especially not a woman, Justin? You have to revere them. You okay, I'm going to revere them. <laughs> okay. I mean, you can, I think you can say someone's really old. Not a woman. You can't say that about a woman. That's, that's sexist or misogynistic. But, or, but only up until a certain point. Like, there's, you know, I don't know. Like, a, like let's say, like 65 like the retirement age. And then after that, you can say so-and-so is elderly. Got it. Um, well, uh, I think that's the rules. And uh, if, if, those, if those are not, if that's not going to be the rule, then uh, I think it should be. All right. Well, Alex will be writing a letter to his congressman uh, 
advocating for a change in the quote-unquote rules, and we will see where that goes. I cannot wait to read that letter and particularly read it on the air. That'll be fun. Now, uh, from my perspective, I was also going to say Gorsuch was a, a good a moment and probably the goodest moment, if you will. But Alex stole that one because uh, he feels privileged to go ahead and steal things out of mine. So um, I chose something else, and it's really kind of a series of moments. It's how Donald Trump has been uh, pin happy when it comes to rolling back Obama-era executive orders and regulations. National Review has a, a column on this by a fellow by the name of Jared Meyer, whoever that is. He actually filed this, it looks like, at 4 a.m. on February or on April 27th. So um, he was up late writing this and thinking about it, so it probably is worth a read or two. So let me, let me read a passage or two from Mr. Meyer's article about the 100-day rollback of Obama-era executive orders, red tape, and unnecessary regulation. Mr. Meyer writes of National Review fame, quote, Every new president, dating back to Jimmy Carter, has promised to cut regulations. Even President Obama's executive orders on improving the regulatory process and cutting red tape sounded impressive when they were issued. That was before six of the seven all-time high years for pages of federal regulations occurred during his tenure. Four decades of nonstop growth in federal regulations show that tackling Washington's bureaucracy is tougher than it sounds. The U.S. Code of Federal Regulations is more than 175,000 pages long, having grown steadily since the 1970s. Mr. Meyer continues, but based on President Trump's first 100 days, there is reason for optimism that this trend is about to change. President Trump has already issued two executive orders on regulatory reform. They sent a message to executive agencies. Regulatory restrictions on businesses will not be able to stop uh, will not be able to keep growing on autopilot. Trump's hiring freeze will also help lower the rate of new regulations. Though Trump's lofty promise to cut regulations by 75%, maybe more, is likely unattainable, simply halting the growth in federal regulations would be a massive achievement, and the president has many methods available to him to accomplish this. So a lot of the regulations that President Trump has cut back have to do with uh, – kind of these burdensome climate regulations. Um, like there's the open waters rule where if you have like any kind of flowing water on your land, whether it's a ditch or something else with flowing water, and you got to get a permit from the federal government to move certain natural resources uh, around the water. And of course that costs money and time and effort. And it really does not help job growth. It actually hinders job growth on the name of this, climate science religion that is prominent on the left. And Donald Trump has done a great job in getting rid of these regulations that are owners, owners, onerous, Um, onerous. (laughs) Also, I I think a good uh, litmus test for uh, litmus test. Yeah. Litmus test for uh, the whole regulation thing is uh, like a a lot of people are not convinced that rolling back regulations in general is a very good thing, but it, it mostly, I would say, Generally, it's a it's a pretty good thing to a, a very good thing. Just think about how um, when when this regulation is enacted, how it will affect um, a large you know entity 
big organization, big corporation versus a small entity like a, um, a small business or uh, an individual. Um, and I think it's pretty clear with this regulation that you just mentioned and, you know, it's ilk. Uh, these things uh, pose, pose a great burden for small, uh, small businesses, small organizations of any kind and individuals, whereas they mean nothing to uh, large corporations who have uh, the dollars and the manpower to very quickly take care of, you know, whatever government permit permitting and whatnot uh, yeah, they, they have to get. So um, that's, that's to all you out there who are not convinced. Well, you know, sure. Corporations have the manpower and the resources and the staff to apply and comply with these rules, but you know, corporations have compliance departments as well with a bunch of lawyers looking at all the regulations that are slowing those companies down, especially like, for example, in the car manufacturing business, all kinds of regulations are put on automobiles these days, and especially through the Obama administration as to how many miles you have to have to the gallon, the kinds of features you have to have in your car. You have to have this kind of safety belt, that kind of safety belt. You have to have like a baby car seat clip and whatever. You have to have a certain kind of a fuel efficiency, um, you know, there are a lot of regulations that even uh, hinder the growth and innovation of large corporations uh, like those car regulations, for example. So while they may have the resources to comply, it also hampers their innovation and thereby hampering their bottom line as well. So these overburdensome regulations are bad for all businesses, both large and small. Very true. My thank you. So President Trump is on the right path and has been these last 100 days on getting rid of ridiculous job-killing regulations and innovation-crushing regulations. And let us hope that he keeps that up within the next well, however many more days he has left in his presidency. So, you know, President Trump has had his high points in his first 100, and he's also had his, well, not-so-high points. Some might say the opposite of high points. And we will start those now. A Ridge, what you got? Um, one thing that kind of got on my nerves was the whole uh, travel ban, the so-called uh, Muslim ban. Ooh. Um, it was, uh, to me, it was an interesting sort of thing that happened. It was an opportunity to uh, get serious, I guess, but it seemed hastily done, hastily rolled out. Um, the criteria for deciding, you know, what immigrants we were letting in, from which countries was unclear. Um, it, it seemed to have to do with a lot of um, what Obama's classifications of different uh, or Obama era classifications of different uh countries you know whether they were allies like saudi arabia which no one quite understands although saudi arabia was not on the list for, yeah i know that, that's why they're not on the list because okay. they're, because they're allies yeah um for versus obviously a you know failed state or uh you know some other places like that <laughs> just <laughs> nice bad bad type places are going to be on the that's list that's like okay. my kind of language that's right a, there that's something i would say yeah, or what trump would say yeah right that's very bad bad places 
That's yeah. my trumpet impression, by the way. I'll be going on tour this time. I know. His influence is just like, you know, seeping out. Yeah. <laughs> Ew. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like not a good thing. We're slowly all becoming illiterate. Or uh, I, I guess not literate, but who knows? Who even knows what the word is? Right. No one knows what words are anymore. <laughs> no. Um, anyway, the so it, yeah, and then it was the rollout was uh, seemed you know too quick. They didn't seem quite prepared for uh, what was going to happen. They didn't seem to take all the situations into account. So people who were like you know on their way to uh, immigrate to America were like, stop! You can't come here. But uh, everything was uh, green light, and we were good to go. Oh, well, sorry. There was just a executive order that was signed three minutes ago. Man, this is bad. You know, so stuff like that I don't like. It it gives uh, um, it considering his rhetoric, Trump's rhetoric from uh, the campaign on immigration, which was uh, you know fairly divisive. Um, the, Barely divisive. Yeah, okay. Donald J. Trump announces a ban on all Muslims in the United States until we can find out what the Hades is going on. Yeah, okay, that's fairly divisive that's, at yeah, the very that's least. Moderately divisive. Um, this is a this is a chance to get serious, like you did with uh, um, Gorsuch, but uh, this was kind of a failure. Um, it was absolutely a failure, not just in the rollout, as you mentioned. And by the way, in the rollout, another problem was the mixed messaging. There were some administration officials who were saying this ban would apply to green card holders and valid visa holders. And right. so they were held up in the airport and it took another administration official, uh, i.e. the Homeland Security Secretary, to say, no, actually, it doesn't apply to them. And that leads to the second part of why this uh, travel ban was so poorly executed it's because uh, of the courts the courts uh, knocked those travel bans down faster than Bill Clinton's pants got knocked down in the Oval Office that's how fast they were knocked down Woo! That's uh, yeah I know that's a retro reference for you but they called me retro reference for Sean for a reason um, and that's the reason right there uh, so now it's true that as we discussed many times these the courts that the plaintiffs in these cases would go to would be far left, extreme radical courts in the, in the ninth circuit, uh, whether it's the ninth circuit district courts or the ninth circuit court of appeals, which would be predisposed to making up any reason necessary. As we said, discussed before, that's what Democrats do on the court as to why that these laws should be knocked down. And the reasoning was totally flawed and legally unsound. But the point is there was a total PR disaster for the Trump administration to have not only all this chaos, to have these protests at airports across the country, but then also to have the courts stop them and block them at every step of the way after the fact. And even when they, you know, launched that second travel ban, you know, that one was stopped too. And so to this day, we still have no travel ban because it's being held up in crazy left-wing courts. Um, You know, as I've said before, I think both of those travel bans are, unquestionably constitutional whether they're the right policy is a different matter but you know, again courts should not be deciding things based on what sound not, policy is they yeah. should be deciding things based on what the law says that they can do so right. uh, this was not a good moment for the trump administration and you know the purpose of the travel ban was to have a 90-day pause or whatever it was 90 to 120 days to find out what the hades is going on whatever that means and then after the 90 slash 120 days are up, 
we can resume, you know, immigration from these countries. Well, you know, at this rate, the 90 to 120 days is going to be up before the travel ban even gets implemented. So is the travel ban going to have the same, you know, effect or is there going to be any point to the travel ban at that point? Um, so, yeah, they definitely rolled it out too fast. They didn't think about all the consequences the first time. The way it was drafted was rather sloppy and hastily done, and they didn't really have a reason as to why they had to roll it out at the time they rolled it out. And, of course, this led to terrible media coverage of Donald Trump and his effectiveness as a leader and the soundness of his policies um, for days and days and weeks and weeks, and here we are months later, and we're still you know, debating this travel ban in courts. So that is uh, something that the Trump administration, I think, would do over. And um, yeah, pretty poorly conceived and executed. You never want to be poorly conceived and executed when you're the president of the United States. And so, indeed, that was a terrible moment. And, you know, I also had a a not so great moment uh, that Alex once again stole. So I will choose a different moment. Um, my moment is going to be kind of the, the very beginning of the presidency when Sean Spicer went out in front of the press corps and kind of berated them, um, beat them over the head, said that we had the largest audience watching the inauguration ever using false numbers and statistics. And then, well, having to defend the, the false statements about who watched the inauguration, how big the audience was, you know, that was such a petty, insignificant fight that the Trump administration chose to have with the media at the very beginning of the presidency that just didn't need to happen. As we've chronicled many times on this show, uh, the news media in this country is awful. It's terrible. It's garbage. It is untrustworthy. It's dishonest. It's deceitful. It's rather useless. Uh, but you can. There are plenty of things you can criticize the news media for. But please don't give them a a knife that they can then use to stab you with, a gun that they can then use Whoa. to shoot you with, a Whoa. bat with which they can then use to beat you over the skull with, by making up blatantly false statistics about things that are. Petty and insignificant. Very graphic today. Very, <laughs> very graphic. Nine o'clock in the morning here in sunny Houston, Texas. Or some other time, whenever you listen to this on the podcast, as you can get on iTunes, by the way. That's right. You can go to iTunes and download the Sudden Depth podcast and subscribe so that we will jump into your podcast app whenever we so choose to post the radio show after the fact. So nine or any other time on the clock that any you're listening other to time. Uh, You know, it's interesting that you chose this one because uh, this was sort of in the running. Um, not, not this, well, this uh, instance in particular, but mainly just uh, Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway. I'm just like, <laughs> why are these people around? <laughs> yeah. Like, this is the highest office in the land. And um, I mean... Not just them, but Steve Bannon as well, Jared Kushner. They were having their battles during, and I guess still are having their power struggles True. within the White House. 
True. But, and, but I, I was thinking about them in particular because they're kind of the public faces of the, uh, the or have been the, yeah, the public faces of the administration. And it's like, uh, you know, these people are, uh, you know, just silly. And Kellyanne Conway has been so discredited that, you know, most shows won't have her on anymore. Right. They don't interview her. They don't even talk to her because she'll say things. And then, um, you know, an hour later, it'll turn out what she said was not true. Like, for example, the Michael Flynn deal when he was fired. Well, the day that he was fired, he was fired at night. Also in the running for the worst moments. (laughs) So in the afternoon, like at four o'clock in the afternoon, Kellyanne Conway goes on MSNBC for whatever reason. And says, oh, no, we've got full confidence in Michael Flynn. He's not going anywhere. He's just fine. He's just media conspiracies. And then, like, around 9 o'clock at night, uh, Michael Flynn, have a nice day. He's the, I, I just imagine, like, I, I can't imagine what the meeting after, after this is like with all the, uh, the staff and everybody. And what is Trump like? Oh, way to, way to take initiative and just make something up when we weren't giving you adequate information. Or she wasn't in the loop at all and just asserted that things yeah, that she didn't like, know about. What, what is he patting on the back saying, oh, you stepped up? I don't know. Even that was a failure, a terrible idea, you know. They're still working for him, so apparently he didn't no, think it was that why, bad. Why are they still there? It's so weird. And then, you know, Kellyanne Conway, if we can, you know, continue our Kellyanne bash fest, she goes on Fox and Friends that other time and, you know, extols the virtues of Ivanka Trump's clothing and jewelry line and says hey go buy ivanka trump products i'm gonna go buy some myself well turns out that's against the white house ethics ethics rules and uh she gets a, a very good talking to in his address and apparently ivanka yelled at kellyanne conway after that uh it was just an embarrassment to everybody involved and she had to go out and kind of walk the, the statements back yeah this this is sort of the pandora's box of like bad stuff about uh about trump yeah. You know, like now we're moving into uh, all the ethics of the whole business arrangement and the nepotism he shows mm-hmm. by appointing his daughter and, uh, and son-in-law. Son. And then having his son go overseas to Iraq with uh, the yeah. general. Uh, yeah. A lot of he told us during yeah, the campaign. This is all the stuff I really don't like. He promised during the campaign he would surround himself with the best people. I'm going to surround myself with the best people. I always choose the best people. And- uh, so that was a little Bernie. I was a little more Bernie. The best that. people. I'm going to surround myself with the best people. That's Bernie right there. There's a nuance there, but it's it's kind of close, I imagine. Um, but see, I think you mean an old aunt. Really? Because they are both really old. <laughs> Hashtag, I see what you did there. That should be the theme of this show. <laughs> Making fun of old people. <laughs> well, we've done that several times on this show, and I'm probably going to do it again on future shows. But so... You know, Donald Trump talked about draining the swamp in Washington during the campaign. Well, he can start with the White House, maybe. Get some of these silly people out of there. You know, Sean Spice has become a, a joke on Saturday, Saturday Night Live with Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, that, that's the thing, though. I think that's really funny. That's, I think that's about the only funny thing that Saturday Night Live is doing these days. She's um, hosting a they, show in April, by the way, so we'll probably see her again. Oh, thank God. They they even found a way to screw up Alec Baldwin as Trump. Yeah, like uh, that that just we're, we're, went down so yes, quickly. We're done with that. That's most McCarthy's what you look for but as Sean Spicer, right. not Alec like, Baldwin. How do you anymore. screw up Alec Baldwin as Trump? He was or anyone as Trump. Anyone Trump, Trump is the most make funnable president. You think George W. Bush was make funnable? Donald Trump like beats him by a mile. Seriously. Uh, oh well. Oh well. Sean Spicer's had a lot of controversial moments to say the least when he <laughs> he said uh 
Hitler had the, the concentration centers or the, the Holocaust centers. <laughs> and he told uh, the black reporter to stop shaking your head. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's, oh my goodness. Now, he's entertaining to watch, that's for darn sure. But I mean, geez Louise, you don't want your press secretary making the news based on what he says. Uh, you want him parlaying your message, not becoming the news himself. But Donald Trump uh, has been saying... Maybe it's another technique, you know. Donald Trump's been saying, oh, Diversion. Sean Spicer, he's he's the star of the afternoon now. He's getting such big ratings, and it's all about ratings for Trump. And so Sean Spicer's probably not going to go anywhere because of the, the quote-unquote ratings. Trump said that in multiple interviews now, that uh, he loves the attention Sean Spicer's getting. So, I mean, it all started on that first day uh, after the inauguration on a Saturday, nonetheless where he goes out, berates the press, makes false statements, and then walks away without taking any questions. What a great way to start the relationship with the media. That uh, doesn't really need any reason to have a bad relationship with them because, again, they're terrible. Okay. So that's uh, kind of the bad moments. And then we have these other uh, extraneous slash miscellaneous moments that are just rather noteworthy. Moments you don't see in any other presidency you never would be bigly moments. And so Alex has got his moment, and this is going to be my bad moment, but this is your strange moment. Talk about it. This is going to be your bad moment? Yes. Um, well, I thought his uh, Trump's wire clap, wire tap claim. Wire clap on, wire clap off. Wire clap. Ugh. Um, I, I thought that, uh, that tweet he sent out was uh, kind of hilarious. To be honest, um, I lolled. Uh, but it was also kind of weird and insane. And then the uh, the reaction to it was equally weird and insane. So before we get to the reaction, let's just review the tweets that Donald Trump sent. Let's do. Okay, so on March 4th, uh, Saturday morning, 6.36 a.m. Eastern Time. First thing in the morning. Donald Trump sends out of nowhere this first tweet. Quote, terrible. Just found out that Obama had my, quote, wires tapped, unquote, in Trump Tower just before the victory. Nothing found. This is McCarthyism. He then follows up at 6.49 a.m. on Saturday, March 4th, 2017. Quote, is it legal for a sitting president to be, quote, wiretapping a race for president prior to an election? Turned down by court earlier, in all caps, a new low. Then again, at 6.52 a.m. on Saturday, March 4th, I'd bet a good lawyer could make a great case out of the fact that President Obama was tapping my phones in October just prior to election. And then, finally, on 7.02 a.m. Eastern Time, on Saturday, March 4th, how low... Has President Obama gone to tap, T-A-P-P, my phones during the very sacred election process? This is Nixon slash Watergate. Bad or sick guy. <laughs> there there your, your wiretap Saturday morning out of nowhere tweets for you. So go ahead. Explain what you were going to say. Oh, thank God for that. Um, well, the, the problem is... Uh, well, there, there's, there's a few different problems with this. First thing is, I just found out, he says, right? Yes. Um, okay. 
how did you find out? We still haven't seen any evidence about that. Although speculation is he was reading a Breitbart article, or someone in his staff put a Breitbart article in his morning stash of mm-hmm. news articles that kind of laid out some of the surveillance, um, you know, unmasking of Trump officials like Michael Flynn during the campaign that Mark Levin had talked about. And Donald Trump took that to say, well, President Obama personally had Trump Tower wiretapped during the election. Okay, interesting. I, I hadn't uh, seen that about the article, but um, I, I had heard, I don't know, he, there was speculation in among people about, uh, in the media about him being spied on. Be, um, okay, so I guess which brings us to the second point, um, which is, hold up, guys, this could be credible. It's, it's unlikely, but it's possible that there's a at least a very small kernel of uh, truth in this. I think we shouldn't just dismiss the claim out of hand, or we should dismiss it out of hand and just wait to see if any evidence comes up. And if, if there isn't any evidence, then, uh, then uh, you know, whatever. But um, th- this was about the same time when uh, it came out, you know, all that the NSA was, uh, was doing in order to spy on people. It's not inconceivable. This is also, if, if you recall, during the election campaign, uh, the um, people uh, were really freaked out about Trump. Yeah. Um, there, there is an easy justification amongst, um, you know, Democrats uh, higher up. You, you could easily call him um, a uh, national security threat and people would believe you. People, people would, uh, you know stay in line with that. So, I mean, it's, it's totally possible that Obama or somebody was like, um, you know, this guy, we need to make sure, like, if he is going to get elected, we need to make sure he's, he's not the worst. And we need to, we need to dig up all the dirt we can on him um, to just to make, just to like uh, do, cause, cause we have this belief that, you know, he might be Hitler. Um, so let's, let's confirm or deny that belief. And have like, his Holocaust centers all over the country. Yeah, to, to an extent, that's, that's just due diligence, if, if that's really a belief that you have. But uh, it probably wasn't Donald Trump's um, – well, I will say it wasn't Donald Trump's thinking when he put these tweets out because, you know, this was Saturday morning around 6 a.m., um, around 8 a.m., 8, 19 a.m. on Saturday, March 4th. He tweeted this. Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't voluntarily leaving The Apprentice. He was fired by his bad, pathetic ratings, not by me. Sad end to a great show. And so we've got these four tweets out of nowhere about this conspiracy by Obama, followed by a tweet about Arnold Schwarzenegger's terrible ratings. So, I mean, this really was just a a stack of stuff he was sent, and he tweets it uh, rather impulsively, and then goes on to the next thing, you know, Schwarzenegger's ratings wasn't taken seriously at all by Trump. I think uh, it was just a way to kind of um, vent his frustration about what happened during the, the campaign with the unmasking of Mike Flynn. Um, because if you'll recall, context will show us that this was the weekend after he gave his joint address or his address to a joint session of Congress. And that address was widely praised by the media. One of the very rare times that happened during the first 100 days. That was on a Tuesday. Then on the Wednesday after that, Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, comes under fire for a meeting with the Russian ambassador that he forgot to tell 
the Senate Judiciary Committee during his confirmation hearings when he was asked about any meetings with the Russians. And so we've got Wednesday through Friday of negative coverage about Jeff Sessions possibly lying or perjuring himself, which he actually didn't do. But that was, you know, the CNN panels of, you know, 10 people with one Trump supporter going on and on about that for three days. And so this could have been also a, a way to change the subject back to Obama and getting it off of Jeff Sessions and any Russian meetings that he may have had. So there's a lot of context for these series of wiretapping tweets. But the point is, uh, they were not backed up by evidence. In fact, the quote-unquote evidence that Donald Trump used did not actually say what he alleged in these tweets. Those articles were saying that um, what you know the media had widely reported at the time, which was that some campaign officials during the transition period, their, their names may have been unmasked, incidentally, in communications with Russian people. Because, you know, the administration of Obama was kind of spying on Russians, listening to their phone calls. But, you know, they were talking to campaign officials. And the campaign officials' names were supposed to be kept secret. But for whatever reason, Obama's folks went and requested that those names be unmasked, to be revealed. And so that's what these articles were talking about. They weren't talking about Obama actually wiretapping Trump Tower, um, which is a, a, a claim that still doesn't have any evidence. And just this past weekend on Face the Nation, or as Donald Trump calls it, Deface the Nation, he was asked by John Dickerson, did you see this very awkward ending to this interview in the Oval Office? John Dickerson asks Donald Trump about these wiretap claims, and he says basically... Look, they're just my opinion. I don't have to prove them. They're just my opinion. You can believe whatever you want to believe. I believe what I believe. And he was pressed on this over and over, and he just kind of abruptly ended the interview and walked away from John Dickerson and went to his desk at the Oval Office. So, you know, this issue still remains unresolved. They had a whole congressional investigation where Devin Nunes, which is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, put on this dog and pony show where... He says, hey, I've got evidence to support this. I just got it, and I'm going to go to the White House and tell them about the evidence and then give a press conference before I even talk to the committee about this. Well, it turns out he got the evidence from the White House, at, on the White House grounds. And so he you know, pretends to tell the White House about something that they already had access to themselves. And this was just a huge headache for, again, weeks and weeks and months on months. And it's one of those recurring things that's just going to keep coming up over and over again until – Donald Trump apologizes and or retracts these tweets, which he will never do because, why? Well, that's not what he does. He, he never backs down, you see. Now, this uh, was a great distraction and from my view of his administration when there are so many important things we have to worry about. We get stuck on things like this for weeks and months at a time. Just weird. It's weird, and to me, a low light, but, uh, well, you stole the low light, so... What I will say was kind of a strange moment for me. Um, well, again, there are many, many strange moments, but among them was this, this press conference. Donald Trump held one press conference during his first 100 days, i.e. during his presidency, and it was wild. Boy, it was beyond entertaining. <laughs> it, was, it made you laugh. It made you cry. It made you cringe. It made you do all kinds of things. But I will say, this, is a, this guy gives press conferences like no one else. Before we get into the press conference, I will say, the White House Correspondents Dinner was this past weekend, and you know the president of the White House Correspondents Association was whining about Donald Trump's supposed 
threats to press freedoms. And as we talked about before on this show, that's bull defecation because the Obama administration actually, you know, pursued journalists criminally for their investigations, whereas Trump just kind of says mean things to them. And so that's ridiculous where the rhetoric apparently becomes threats to the First Amendment or whatever. Um, but one of the things that the president of the WHD had to admit was that he gets a lot of access and reporters get a lot of access from this White House. And uh, a New York Times reporter who uh, is almost always fighting with Sean Spicer in the briefing room whenever he gets called on, he admits that during press conferences, Donald Trump is a lot more small D democratic in his approach than President Obama was. When Obama had press conferences, he had a, a sheet of paper in front of him where he had, you know, five or six organizations he would call on and that's it. And he would take a question that required a 30 second answer and turned it into a five-minute answer or even a 10-minute answer. And, you know, you get very little information because it was basically filibustering and talking points galore. Whereas Donald Trump, during this press conference, called on, you know, pretty much every reporter until they were exhausted and went around and around and took all the questions and answered them and was more succinct and pithy with his answers than Obama ever was. And he was also entertaining. Now, this conference was particularly entertaining because the CNN reporter uh, named Jim Acosta, who's their White House correspondent, during the transition period, he had that exchange with uh, uh, Jim Acosta about, you know, whether the organization was fake news. Uh, and that kind of went viral. You may remember this uh, moment from the pre-inauguration press conference during the transition. Go ahead. No, Mr. President-elect, go, go Mr. President-elect, since you are attacking no, our news not organization, you, not can you. you give us a chance? Your organization, you are attacking our news organization. organization. Can you give us a chance Let's to ask go. a question, sir? Go ahead. Sir, can Quiet. you state, Quiet. Mr. President-elect, go ahead. can you state categorically, a question. Mr. President-elect, can you give us a question? Don't be rude. You're attacking us. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. Can you no, give I'm us a question? I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You can you state categorically? You are fake news. Sir, go ahead. can you state categorically that nobody, no, Mr. President-elect, that's not. <laughs> That's not nice, he said. <laughs> that was during the transition period, and he got a, kind of a redo with uh, this press conference on in February. Sit down. Just, we'll, just we'll because of the we'll get just it. because of the attack of fake news and, and attacking our network, I, I just want to ask you, sir. I'm changing it from fake news, though. Do, doesn't that undermine very fake news? I yeah. know, but aren't you? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, real news, Mr. President. Real news. And you're um, not. Re- yeah, so <laughs> he went from uh, fake news to very fake news with uh, Jim Acosta of CNN. That was a see. It's a very funny kind of moment. He insults the press and you know says everything that he doesn't agree with. That's covered. That you know they the way they cover him that he doesn't agree with is fake news. But he's also entertaining and he gets the ratings. And so that is yep. why that is a very unique moment and a very different kind of press conference. Uh, different from what we've ever seen before. Indubitably. I don't know if you got a chance to watch any of these press conferences. Have you got a chance to see any of them? Uh, no, I, I usually don't watch the uh, press conferences. Oh, you got to take it. This is like, this is David Chappelle level stuff. It, well, it certainly can be. The, the, the con- press conferences and the rallies, um, it's just incredible. Yeah. And, you know, that's why people liked him during the campaign because he just said what was on his mind, and uh, he certainly knows how to, to roast people, even though he doesn't like to be roasted, apparently, because he skipped out on the White House correspondence Dinner himself. So 
Yeah, I heard that was a debacle. Well, the the guy they chose from the Daily Show is uh, was uh, obviously a Trump hater, and uh, some of the jokes fell flat. I must say, um, I'd did, say a did majority you, of you them. watch the correspondence. Absolutely, center? I do it every year. Every <laughs> year since the, the first one of Obama's with Wanda Sykes, when she joked that Rush Limbaugh should have a heart attack or something to that effect, and Obama laughed his face off. Of course, uh, Rush Limbaugh dying—that's hilarious. I've always said that. I know. I'm sure you have. I mean, he's not looking too good. I don't uh, think he's ever looked too let's, good. Let's calm down, please. I would say probably the best one of these dinners was um, either Seth Meyers or Jimmy Kimmel in 2011 and 2012, respectively. You know, the Seth Meyers one was notable because Donald Trump was sitting there, and both President Obama and the Seth Meyers roasted Donald Trump to his face, and there was not a lot of laughing going on by Mr. Trump. Some say that was the moment he decided to run for president right there in 2011. <laughs> Oops. Yes. <laughs> so now Obama go, and guys. Seth Meyers may rue the day they took cheap shots at the future president who would undo everything that they loved and cared for. Um, so, yeah, the, Seth Meyers was good because he kind of had this controversial, stinging type of humor. Um, and Jimmy Kimmel was good because, well, I mean, he, he has a certain way of being sarcastic and funny at the same time. So you think he's going one direction and he goes a different direction. So those are probably the best two uh, of the past eight years, I guess, nine years. Now. Yeah, I, I didn't uh, I didn't watch those. I did watch the Larry Wilmore one, which wow. I uh, regret. <laughs> not too oh, bad. my God, that was horrific. Joe Hale, Larry Wilmore, probably up there with the worst two. <laughs> Joe McHale, whatever his name is. Joel McHale? Yeah. Um, the the best one is definitely uh, uh, got to be Norm MacDonald from like the mid-90s. Oh. <laughs> the Clinton era? So, yeah, so good. Uh, Norm MacDonald. And so, makes me so happy. Right. Yes, I'm sure he does. He, he does. Uh, President Trump says he told, I believe, well, I forget who it was. He told someone in his string of 100 days interviews that he might go next year to next year's White House Correspondents' Dinner. And he didn't go this year because his relationship with the press is bad and he didn't want to seem phony and go pretend to like people that he doesn't like and then to treat him dishonestly. So I can actually respect that. that I mean, that to me, that's like uh, totally relatable. Yeah. If I were in his position, I would be like, I'm not going to that. Right. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And he went instead to a rally in Pennsylvania, which is one of the he flipped in the Rust Belt uh, with his people and had a rally the same night as the White House Correspondents' Dinner. So you had the, the split screen going on there. So yeah, that's always fantastic with, as far as optics go. One of the few optics he's gotten right during the first 100 days. And so... Those are kind of our, our favorite moments of these first three-plus months of Trump's presidency. Uh, the question, though, is where do we go from here? What are some of the big things I would ask um, to both of us um, that we think Donald Trump will accomplish in the next however long his presidency is? And some of the things you should watch out for. Do you have any ideas on that? Not getting impeached would be good. That'd be good. Uh, that'd be a good thing to do. Um, if you have the chance to appoint another Supreme Justice, uh, continue doing a good job. Um, probably uh, tone down the Twitter Twitterick. 
Twitter rhetoric. You're one of those people who thinks that the tweeting is too much. Um, yeah, I mean the like the wiretapping thing is a good example of that. Yeah, I I actually like the tweets um, for the most part. I just don't like the tweets that have zero basis in fact that we have to spend, you know, three weeks defending the indefensible. Like when you say, I would have won the popular vote if it weren't for three to five million illegal votes. That is something you cannot defend, and it's just distracting, and it's asinine, and we don't need tweets like that. It would be a lot better if uh, you grounded the stuff you say in facts or at least um, reasoning. Educated you know? guesses, educated speculation. Yeah, right. So that would be something I would like to see more of. Um, what about uh, his legislative agenda and working with Congress? Also, I'd like to see a lot less of, well, haven't seen much of Kellyanne Conway recently. <laughs> thank God. But, uh, I mean, Sean Spicer gets the readings, I guess. Actually, you can keep, you can keep him around. Right, because I, I want to see the SNL. Yeah, we have Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. <laughs> That's always good. Yeah, thank God. I'm kind of concerned about his uh, ability to get stuff through Congress. He doesn't seem to have a very good ability to do that, especially with a obstructionist Democratic Party who is, you know, dead set on just blocking everything he tries to get through the legislative body. We've seen that with health care. Oh, and also, by the yeah, way, that, that's totally what I thought was going to be your bad slash ugly thing, the healthcare thing. But I guess we already kind of. Well, I, I blame it on Republicans. Which I was about to say that I blame it on Republicans uh, more than Trump. Right. Because they can't get their act together when they were promised to repeal Obamacare. I went on a rant about this a few weeks ago on the show that they promised over and over to repeal Obamacare. And then when it's finally time to do it, they've turned tail and run. Uh, that is just beyond disappointing to me. And they're opposed to make that same mistake on tax reform. Oh, man. If they can't get through health care, which, you know, the Freedom Caucus is now on board with the new health care version. And they were saying this is going to be a vote this week. And it's probably their last chance to have a real vote because, of course, they go on vacation again next week. The House does when they have stuff to do. They were just on vacation for two weeks before last week, and they're going on vacation again. Having not really passed anything, they have another government on the budget bill. Republicans are so uh, afraid of a government shutdown, they won't. They have no spine. Shut the government down. It's a partial shutdown. It doesn't affect essential services. If you keep uh, acquiescing to yeah. democratic demands, or otherwise the government shuts down, they're going to steamroll you every time. The government, the Democrats, You're already got going everything on they want every two weeks. They, yeah, this that will just be a slightly longer. Planned vacation. Parenthood is funded. There's no border wall funding. Um, you know, the sanctuary cities are still funded. Oh man, it's just infuriating the spinelessness of the Republican Party. Trump has got to do something with that in the next uh, however many days, or else he's not going to get any major accomplishments done legislatively, at least not conservative ones. You know, there's no infrastructure bill there's no tax reform there's no tax reform there's no health care reform so trump you got to do better working with congress there's no excuse for all this stuff yeah we'll be here the next 100 days and however days with you following donald trump's administration until then sudden death out See you soon.